Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Resuming Debate podcast. I'm your host, Garnet Janice. I've really enjoyed over the last few months uh, doing these weekly podcasts. Uh, we are going to be taking a hiatus over the summer. So this will be our last episode uh, prior to that summer break. It will give you a chance to uh, get caught up on old episodes. It will give me a chance to uh, spend a little bit more time with my family and uh, no doubt get ahead on on reading uh, that will inspire uh, subsequent uh, choices for for podcasts and uh, and also get ahead on some uh, some other projects. So uh, so expect uh, us to not be posting episodes throughout July and August and to return with uh, with more new content in September. And I'd encourage you if you haven't uh, listened to all of the episodes to go back look at some of these older episodes. Uh, we've had we've had a lot of of great guests, uh, authors, uh, commentators, uh, current politicians looking at uh, important issues. And, and this podcast has allowed me to, to facilitate kind of longer, deeper, and I think more historically informed conversations about current politics. So much of, of my life in the House of Commons and committee is in these, these quick, short exchanges, and it's great to be able to uh, go deeper and also share some of those reflections with you. So uh, for our for the last episode uh, of, uh, of sort of the spring session here, uh, we're going to be talking about a populist politician, someone with unconventional ideas about monetary policy. His opponents accuse him of being a, an anti-science demagogue. His supporters see him as a champion of everyday people against the elites. Uh, but I'm not talking about any currently living politician. I'm talking about uh, really the first 20th century uh, populist politician uh, this is Williams, William Jennings Bryan, who ran three times unsuccessfully uh, for the uh, for the presidency of the United States uh, on the Democrat ticket. He is someone whose life and career, I think, holds an interesting sort of mirror to contemporary debates in both Canada and the United States. And I'm very pleased to be joined by his biographer, Michael Kazin. So, Michael, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us for this conversation about this uh, this great and important figure from American history. Happy to be here, and it's great to talk to folks in Canada. I don't usually get that opportunity, so. Wonderful. Well, look, we're going to talk mostly about Brian, as I said, but I do want to start off uh, by uh, getting you to tell us a bit about your new book, and I, I haven't read it yet, but uh, uh, but but make the case to me and to, to everyone else on 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 uh, on it. Uh, your your latest book, "What It Took to Win: A History of the Democratic Party." Well, the title sort of says it all. There's never been a analytical history of the Democratic Party written before, believe it or not. The whole party. It's the oldest mass political party in the history of the world, dating back to the uh, early 19th century, time of Jefferson and, and Jackson. Uh, people know their U.S. history and. Um, really, I'm trying, trying to understand the coalitions Democrats put together, uh, the ways in which they were successful and why they were successful and why they were unsuccessful when they weren't successful. And the, the, the overall argument of the book is that Democrats uh, do best when they put forth a argument for what I call moral capitalism. That is uh, a, an economy and a politics that works for ordinary working people. In the 19th century, that was more about opposing big banks, big corporations. The 20th century has been more about uh, helping wage earners uh, on the job with labor unions, um, with uh, housing and health care. Um, and uh, when Democrats get away from that 
you sort of might say sort of mild class appeal, um, they don't do very well. Uh, one of the reasons they're not doing well now, I think, is because they're not perceived as a party that's helping the ordinary working person in the U.S. Fascinating. Well, um, this this will this will relate closely. Then, I mean, I'm I'm sure that that Brian features in your book, but oh, yeah, he's 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 uh, one of the main characters in one of the chapters. So. Right. But it's quite an undertaking to, to write a history, just following up on that, a history of, of a 200-year-old political party. And especially if you have people talk a lot about the switch, right, around issues of, of uh, racial justice. I mean, um, I mean, and some people don't agree with that analysis, but, um, but you know, is, is it true that there are sort of common threads in the history of the Democratic Party in 200 years, or has it um, you know, on first blush, it would look like it's just sort of totally changed since its uh, since its its foundings in the era of slavery. Are. I think there are. I mean, the coalition is quite different. Uh, Andrew Jackson's coalition back in the 1820s and 30s was made up of of uh, Southern whites, uh, many of them slaveholders, though not not most, and a lot of uh, Northern <coughs> excuse me <coughs> working people, uh, including uh, by the 1840s a lot of Irish immigrants coming over, escaping the the famine. Um, with, with basically nothing but the clothes on their back. Um, so it was a very much a sort of top-down coalition in that sense. Um, but what united them was a dislike of Wall Street, of big financial interests, of um, the uh, Second Bank of the United States, uh, which, Johnson, which Jackson opposed, which was the central bank of the U.S. at the time, which was investing money where its directors decided they wanted to invest it. And a lot of small business people and workers, small farmers were getting... Uh, cut out of that, uh, that uh, decision-making process. At least that's how Jackson's people saw it. Um, and so there's, cold, there's a connection between that, I think, and uh, some of Joe Biden's policies, which uh, would, would um, uh, punish you know, big corporations, uh, uh, is in favor of more uh, aggressive antitrust prosecutions against companies like Facebook and, uh, and Amazon, uh, and also um, would be, would would empower labor unions much more? Something Andrew Jackson didn't really care about, right? So, so you're saying, and, and this will will kind of speak as we as we move into the discussion of Brian, but um, that there that you had kind of southern elites and northern workers, but they were united by their uh, dislike of kind of the the northern economic establishment. They disliked exactly. it for different exactly. reasons. Perhaps, the financial but... elite, the northeastern capital, right? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and of course, it wasn't just uh, the Southern elite. I mean, most white Southerners voted for the Democratic Party right. and did, as you probably know, until the really 1960s. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I think we'll, we'll probably come back to, to that because it, it, it's, uh, you know, it speaks to kind of the coalition Brian was trying to build. But, but let's, let's dive into to, you know, the, the discussion about William Jennings, Brian. Fascinating to me and I think highly relevant uh, for reasons that, uh, that will become clear very soon. Uh, you, you, wrote, um, you wrote this great book, A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings, Brian. Um, and you wrote it back in 2006. So it's, it's interesting how, how, in a way, it's become more relevant as a result of, of uh, trends since. But should you maybe just, just share your case a bit on this? Um, uh, for those who don't know much uh, about him, who was Brian? Uh, why was he interesting to you? And what is his uh, contemporary relevance? Sure. Well, he was, as you mentioned in the opening, he ran for president three times, three-time loser. Uh, only Democratic candidate ever to run three times and lose. And um, a little bit about his background, he was born in 1860. 
He was born in a little town in Southern Illinois called Salem, Illinois, not the same Salem where Abraham Lincoln uh, grew up, uh, but uh, there were several Salem's actually in Illinois at the time. And um, he, uh, his father was a judge. Um, he became a lawyer and uh, very important. I call him a godly hero because he was a, a fundamentalist Protestant, a, uh, a, uh, a Presbyterian actually. And, but for him, his politics and his religion were really of a piece. The, uh, his politics was really what we consider now progressive or even left. Uh, I was thinking uh, in Canada, he probably would have been a member of the NDP, but uh, you know, he, he was uh, friendly with socialists and labor party people in, uh, in Britain. Uh, and so he was a, uh, um, a progressive uh, politics, the political term uh, was at the time in the United States and is today as well. He was on the left. But in terms of his religion, he was a fundamentalist. He really believed that the Bible was the word of God, and he defended that uh, throughout his life. So he was an interesting amalgam, I think, of uh, you might call religious conservatism, at least theological conservatism, and political uh, leftism or progressivism. Mm -hmm. So, so um, religious fundamentalist, uh, progressive, uh, three-time loser, um, I, I think one of the reasons he comes up in conversation today is he was also very much a populist, right? Maybe maybe share a little bit about that sure, populist sure. identity. Well, populism, I wrote a whole book on, on populism in the United States as a language, as it's called the, the populist persuasion, came out uh, uh, in the mid-1990s, been updated since. And, you know, I don't know about Canada, but populism has, I think, been a consistent um, theme in a lot of American political rhetoric, uh, really since... Uh, uh, Jefferson's day, uh, if, if not before. And that is the people against the elite, the moral people, hardworking people, God-fearing people, that was really true for Brian, uh, against a immoral, uh, corrupt elite, sometimes economic elite, sometimes uh, political elite, sometimes cultural elite. And, and Brian uh, was very much a candidate of small farmers, of urban workers, uh, who believed that the economy in the late 19th century where America was industrializing very quickly uh, was uh, really being taken away from them, uh, was no longer the more egalitarian economy that at least a lot of white farmers and white workers remembered from before the Civil War, uh, which a lot of Northerners had fought for uh, to preserve uh, during the Civil War. It was a, an economy, according to Brian and his followers, that was run by the big banks, by uh, by the big corporations, uh, big industrial corporations, especially Carnegie Steel and uh, um, um, United, uh, International Harvester, and uh, and also was uh, prices were going up and down uh, because of what uh, people were doing on Wall Street. So it was an economy that no longer was serving the ordinary person. And so in that sense, he was um, a populist with a small p. And also there was a People's Party, the original party which gave the name uh, to the word populist uh, in the United States in the 1890s, a third party in the U.S., uh, which was, you know, pretty, pretty uh, uh, powerful in some ways, some, 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 some relation to, to the social credit uh, folks uh, in, in Canada a little bit later. And um, he, in 1896, his first presidential campaign, he was only 36 years old, Brian's uh, Democrats fused with the populist party, the third party, hoping mm -hmm. that putting together this alliance uh, of 
the populist forces with a small p would be able to take over the country and defeat the pro-corporate Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's that's uh, fascinating, and 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 obviously, you know, populist, religious fundamentalist, leftist, progressive is a is an interesting combination, right? And maybe it challenges the way we we try to categorize uh, people today, right? Because I mean, there, there's such a polarization in political parties and, and, and yet to recognize that, you know, learning from history, that, that very much it's possible to, to combine these kind of different elements uh, as part of, of one's, uh, one's political identity. Um, what drew you to a uh, study of Brian and, and what is, um, uh, what, what do you tell people now speaking in 2022 uh, about the importance of of reading your book and understanding who this um, who this late nineteenth, early twentieth century figure was. Well, I was drawn to it partly because I wrote that book on populism, and I, as I said before, I think populism is inescapable uh, subject in American political history and American cultural history, for that matter too. It crops up on the right, on the left, in the middle, uh, in different ways throughout American history, uh, and. As you said, you know, Brian is uh, thought of by people who know anything about him and anything about US history as the quintessential populist. So uh, I was interested in looking at his life and a uh, good biography had never been written. Also, I wrote the book, I began to do research on the book in the late 1990s. I did a lot of the research from writing in the early uh, 21st century. And this was a time when uh, the Christian right was very strong, still is uh, in the United States um, and George W. Bush of course, elected in 2000, uh, and he was very much a candidate of the Christian right. And I wanted people like me on the left, because that's my politics, um, to to really take religion more seriously in American history. Hmm. It's, it's too it's too easy, I think, for people on the left, at least in this country. I don't know about Canada, to sort of say, well, deeply religious people, you know, they're you know they believe in this myth and that's uh, an illusion, and they should you know be rationalists and. Uh, haven't they learned from the Enlightenment and so forth? Um, and you know, I think, I, I think uh, any any good historian uh, has to be empathetic towards those huh. they study. So even though I don't share Brian's religion at all, I'm a Jew and and, and an atheist. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, I want to understand why this deeply believing Christian who had progressive politics um, had so many supporters. Uh, he didn't win the election. But uh, as I talk about in the book, he had tremendous popularity. He had hundreds of thousands of letters written to this man, probably more letters written to him than any other uh, politician in America at the time, including those who were elected president. And, um, and so he was a hero to them, as I said, and a hero partly because uh, they believed he was consistent, that his religion uh, was what led him to his politics. And so I was fascinated by that uh, combination, because uh, as you say, it's not a combination today in um, a very, of course, divided and deeply polarized American political universe that you see hardly at all. Uh, I can't think of a conservative Christian, um, at least a white conservative Christian, uh, who is a uh, also a, a progressive Democrat. Hmm. Yeah, and th there is an interesting parallel to Canadian politics, I'll say for, for our listeners here, in that, um, and I, I mean, I think there, there, there's, there's big differences between them, but, but Tommy Douglas, uh, who, yeah. who uh, yeah. uh, you know, a Baptist, Baptist minister, and I, I don't know enough about his theology to say, you know, where he would fit on the sort of literalist kind of fundamentalist spectrum or not, but, um, 
but he he was a Baptist minister who went into politics and and, and on the on the sort of left side of things and is um, is uh, is seen in, in in some sense as the father of Canada's uh, universal public health care system. So um, so maybe more successful even than 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 Brian was. So there is this history in both the Canada and the U in Canada and the U.S. of, of kind of a of a religious left, and and now um, the trend in politics has been. Um, has been a um, kind of a, a greater antipathy towards religion from the left, and and, and that I think that's actually led a lot of people of faith or, or people who are who are pro life, but otherwise have more might have more more sort of center center left economic views to still kind of affiliate themselves with right of right of center parties. Um, so maybe that's a missed opportunity for for the Democrats uh, yeah. or for left wing parties in Canada. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think that's true. I think that's true. That's not true for African American Democrats, uh, mm-hmm. many of whom are churchgoers, especially older ones, and and uh, and do vote you know overwhelmingly for Democrats. Though it's Republicans have chipped away at that a little bit uh, right. in certain areas. Uh, but I think you know Christianity is a big a very big tent. Obviously, there are many different yeah. kinds of Christians, uh, for that matter, different kinds of Jews and yeah. and Muslims as well. But uh, of course, Christians are the majority of the population, both in, in Canada and the U.S., and have always been, and um, and that means they're the most important group politically, and in both countries. And and um, in the early 20th century, there was something in both Canada and the U.S. Uh, called the social gospel. Uh, yeah. We're deeply believing Protestants and some Catholics as well, some Eastern Orthodox too, uh, believe that the only kind of Christianity that was worth uh, believing in was what they called applied Christianity. That is a Christianity which would be out to solve the problems of the world. Uh, so you had a lot of people, including socialists in the US and maybe in Canada too, uh, who were socialist ministers. There was, a, for example, the, the, the mayor of Berkeley, California, for a while, was a Presbyterian minister named J. Stitt Wilson. It, you know, Berkeley, California, not thought of as a very religious place yeah. today, of course. Um, but then it was, you know, there were a lot of liberal, liberal Protestants, um, especially, and, and some liberal Catholics, too. I mean, the uh, idea of the living wage, for example, was, uh, uh, was pushed by uh, Monsignor John Ryan, a, a leading prelate in the American Catholic Church uh, in the early 20th century wrote a book, best-selling book uh, with that title, A Living Wage. So the problem now, I think, is um, all kinds of reasons. Uh, I don't know if you want to go into it, why, why deep religious people, as you say, are, are tend to vote for Republicans in this country more, maybe for, for your party in Canada. I'm not sure. Um, I think it's um, partly because, as you say, of the uh, antagonism towards more cosmopolitan liberals and progressives uh, who tend to be Democrats, uh, almost to a man and a woman. I think it's also uh, because the Christian right, at least in this country, uh, affiliated itself with the Republican Party uh, very strongly because of issues like abortion and earlier uh, gay marriage uh, and now transgender issues. And so people who uh, were uh, religious, uh, uh, religiously inclined Democrats uh, um, or just secular Democrats thought, well, People, religious people—that's—that's that's a cause for Republicans. So we're not going to—we're mm. not going to be part of that. So, as as with everything else in American politics right now, and for the last few decades, actually, um, it's it's very divided. You know, right and left, yeah. Democrat, Republican, and that's true yeah. of religion as well. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's just—it's—it's it's one of the really curious things about um, about politics that um, that also. I think for some people, partisan identification is actually replacing the role that 
um, that religious identification used to have, whereas it seemed like historically it was more normal for people to bring their religious convictions to politics. Now people are bringing their political convictions. Um, no, that's well said. It's yeah. That's yeah. True. So, but uh, it's interesting you, you describing kind of the genesis of your initial interest, uh, which seemed to be around kind of the discussion of religion and American politics and the kind of Bush era and Brian's identity as a as a as a member of the religious left, um, because because now uh, you know a decade and a half later, it seems that the the most obvious connection is is not so much on the question of religious fundamentalism, but on the question of populism mm-hmm. and how. Um, I mean, it's a lot of people from from your side of the aisle uh, would would be inclined uh, in reaction to Trump to advance a a, a broad critique of populism in general. Um, certainly, we hear it from the Canadian left: this sense that that all populisms are bad, and perhaps uh, not appreciating um, the different ways in which um, populism has been used on both the right and the left. Um, uh, so, so how, how do you respond to those who who would advance kind of a, a a broad critique of all populisms? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, of course, you know, being the academic here, it depends how you define the term, right? Yeah. Um, and I define the term really as a way of talking about politics. Uh, as I said before, very, very, very uh, in a gross in, in a gross uh, terms. Uh, broad terms, the uh, populism is a language which celebrates uh, and sides with the uh, majority of uh, uh, working people, ordinary people, uh, seen as a moral assemblage against an immoral elite, uh, different kinds of immoral, immoral elites. And it's a very, it's a very uh, flexible language, promiscuous language. So often now people on the left or, or liberals in this country too sometimes use populism to just talk about demagogues. But, but Franklin Roosevelt used populist rhetoric. He talked about uh, economic royalists in his 1936 uh, acceptance speech where he won a landslide election uh, that fall uh, and uh, was responsible for probably the most uh, progressive uh, policy uh, gains in American history. Um, and uh, so, so really, populist rhetoric is, is available to everybody, and it's very useful. I mean, Bernie Sanders uh, uses populist rhetoric all the time, and so does Elizabeth uh, Warren. So people on the left certainly use it all the time. Uh, um, left-wingers right now tend to use it more about economic terms, not cultural terms. Of course, they don't talk about, about critical race theory being taught in schools. They don't talk about you know, transgender uh, rights and so forth. They talk about, or try to talk about, you know, supporting people want to form labor unions, uh, uh, want to tax the rich more. I mean, that's the language of left-wing populism. Language of right-wing populism historically is much more a language um, opposing the governing elite, opposing the administrative state, uh, opposing also often the cultural elite, Hollywood, immoral uh, elites, um, education, which tries to turn students against their parents, the kind of thing that actually uh, Brian talked about when he talked about evolution. Um, so I think there's, that's a very quick and dirty summary, I think. Yeah. But, but in answer to your question, which I sort of rambled around, um, I think it's a real mistake for uh, political people on either side to put down populism. It's a language, in the United States at least, uh, which is often used to, um, I think, call those in authority uh, to task for not 
living up to the ideals of the American Republic, which are great ideals, you know, Declaration of Independence, the preamble to the Constitution, advancing the common welfare, the preamble to the US Constitution says. Well, many politicians don't do that <laughs> uh, clearly. And so many people use populist language to call them on that and say, you know, you said you were gonna do this and you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. The people want you to do it. You know, this kind of language is, is I think, uh, it's inescapable. And uh, yeah. it's a real mistake for people on the left, people on my side to, to poo-poo it, to dismiss it. Yeah, I, I think that's that's very well said. Obviously, it depends on what you what you mean by populism, uh, but but um, um, but but it's a it's a powerful and legitimate uh, toolkit to question the power of elites and to question their uh, their use of power. Um, so one one uh, area of critique of elites that we we see from Brian and we see from modern populists is around monetary policy and um, monetary policy is the sort of thing that on most days is seen as sort of hyper niche and the and the preserve of uh, of uh, of uh, you know high level economists and analysts but then there are also these moments where uh, questions of of monetary policy uh, become widely debated and we're kind of in one of those those moments now um, I guess I, I can think back a few years ago when there was the big push around uh, around reforming the uh, the Federal Reserve, and then um, and then now I think in Canada and the U.S. there's a lot of discussion about cryptocurrency. Um, the, the use of monetary policy as part of uh, populism was was something that that Brian championed as well, although although kind of in a different sense, right? Brian was um, was uh, was against the gold standard, and and uh, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of modern, sort of the modern populist use of monetary policy is is in a different direction. Uh, why do why do you think that this this whole area of monetary policy comes up, and and what is it that, that gets? How did Brian use it, and what is it that gets kind of everyday thinking people thinking about where their money comes from? Yeah, well, I'm not I'm no uh, economist, and certainly not an expert on cri- cryptocurrency one way or another. Even though I I mistrust it, <laughs> um, <laughs> but. In the late 19th century, uh, the U.S. economy was growing very quickly. I think the uh, Canadian one was as well. Was, was as well. This was, you know, both economies were getting industrialized uh, pretty quickly. And uh, in the United States, uh, all money at the time had to be based on precious metals in the federal treasury, gold uh, or sometimes silver. But the U.S. was on a gold standard, which means that for the most part, silver was not uh, was not the basis of uh, of the currency. And what that meant, because gold was uh, much scarcer than, than silver, uh, it meant that uh, interest rates were usually pretty high. Uh, it meant that, uh, of course, it was difficult for small farmers, uh, small business people in general to get loans. It also meant that when times went bad, uh, the money supply was quite inflexible. Uh, you couldn't inflate the money supply uh, the way now the Federal Reserve in the United States, of course, does all the time. It did during the pandemic. Uh, there's more than that as well. So uh, really the debate about the gold versus silver standard in the late 19th century was a debate between the haves and the have-nots, the debate between creditors who had loaned money to small farmers, loaned money to small business people, wanted to make sure they get paid back at the same value of the money, and uh, small business people, whether farmers or others, uh, or those who work for them sometimes too, who, uh, who felt that this was far too inflexible, they couldn't afford it, interest rates were too high. Uh, they basically wanted to, uh, to expand the economy uh, by making credit easier, uh, by uh, perhaps even 
uh, coining money, uh, excuse me, issuing money based on nothing but the full faith and credit of the government, the way uh, was done during the Civil War. Those are called greenbacks. Uh, greenbacks were was money based on nothing but the, uh, the the power of the federal government, which is true now, of course, with the American dollar. But creditors, uh, business people, generally big business people, especially especially in the East, follow the uh, the United Kingdom, the most powerful economy in the world at the time, which was on the gold standard, and probably every every British colony uh, was on the was on the gold standard. I'm pretty sure uh, that it was, and so. Uh, they said, well, we can't get out of step with Great Britain. And that was a, a problem, too, for a lot of people who supported Brian. They thought, they thought the British were, you know, sort of the apotheosis of the elite, <laughs> uh, the economic elite in the world, because they were so powerful. And the Bank of England, of course, was the most powerful bank in the world. So, you know, that was really, and money was, of course, so important because the economy was growing, but there were uh, times of, uh, um, of collapse. There were depressions in the 1870s, depressions in the 1890s, and, uh, there was no Federal Reserve around, as I mentioned, as you mentioned, to to help get the economy out of those uh, economic bad times. And so those who supported Brian said the way to do that was to just have more money in circulation based on silver uh, and gold. And silver is much more plentiful or based on nothing but the, the government, uh, the, but the trust in the government. And that would be greenbacks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we I guess we had a. a not entirely dissimilar movement in Canada called the social credit movement. I don't know if you had an equivalent in, in the U S but the province I'm from Alberta elected a social credit government on, on a promise to print sort of what they called prosperity certificates, which, which would have, <laughs> that's a great term. I didn't uh, hear that term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, it, 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 it was interesting in, in the Canadian context, it, you know, federalism is similar in the U S maybe, maybe um, in Canada, federalism and conflict between different, regions and jurisdictions is a is a big part of the story of our although well we never had a civil war at least but um uh but the um uh, but, but it was it was a provincial government in alberta that got elected on this policy and right. and they got told that they they actually couldn't do it because it was uh it was a violation of of the federal government's uh sole control over over monetary policy and and look i mean we i, I don't want to get into the whole you know discussion about what is or is not a good idea on monetary policy but it is it's just interesting that, that the, the money issue comes up and it has come up again, right? But but today it's the populism of today is is more a, um, a critique of inflationary economics because they say that inflationary economics is uh, um, is hurt is hurting everyday people by by inflating the price of of the goods they buy. Um, I mean, do you have any reflections on 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 that? Again, I'm not. Uh, I'm a little out of my league talking about present day yeah. economics, but you know, I think again the context historically really really matters. What yeah. was going on in the late 19th, early 20th century uh, was that credit was usually very tight, and there were a right. lot of a lot of a lot of real bust and boom economy, uh, right. and a lot of people were living very close to the bone. You know, uh, most urban residents uh, barely had enough money to pay rent and clothing and, and food. Yeah. Um, and uh, men wanted to go out to the, <laughs> go, go out go out to the to the saloon when they could, but that was about right. it, you know. Yeah. For entertainment, uh, women had almost no entertainment besides you know talking to each other. Um, so, uh, how do you expand the economy to help ordinary people? That was the question. And of course, those who who believe in the gold standard thought you don't do it by inflating the money supply, and then you're going to end up um, with a lot of people um, starting businesses which will not be sustainable and they're going to bust and then you'll end up with, with another depression. Um, 
But, uh, you know, it was, it was really those in power pretty much were saying over and over again, we have to stay with the system we know. We can't, uh, as maybe in Canada as well, uh, we can't get involved in these, these experiments, these monetary experiments. Uh, it's very dangerous. And those who were have-nots, who were desperate for, you know, some way out of their condition said, well, let's, let's try something. <laughs> uh, what we have now is not working. Um, yeah. And that, it's I like, think, is, is pretty much the way the politics of that usually goes. Yeah. So I guess like one um, one constant, at least we're, we're seeing in, in these sort of monetary debates, is that uh, you've got a group of people who, who are saying, keep the system we have. It's too risky to change it. And then you've got people who are saying, let's, you know, let's let's try something new. Right. It's kind of this conservative versus progressive instinct, although. Although ironically, it's it's the sort of it's it, it may be inverted today, but 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 um, okay. So that's that's the monetary policy issue. I guess the next place to go, maybe coming out of the monetary policy, is Brian gives this this powerful speech, the Cross of Gold speech, and it's it's full of hyperbole, right? Like essentially, he's describing the existing uh, monetary system as as nailing people to a cross of gold, using this religious imagery, comparing it to uh to, to crucifixion and um um he's got he's got this sort of lyrical kind of uh uh powerful tone but it's but it's it's painting everything in such such broad broad brushes uh, tell us what you think about the just the speaking style of brian was it was it unique to him was was this kind of um um flowing Big, big images, hyperbole was this kind of typical of the era, um, because I, I, I find it, I find it fascinating. And I, th I think, I think we live in a much more skeptical age where a lot of people would, you know, they'd listen to that speech and they'd run it through the fact checkers, and, and <laughs> they would, they would make fun of it on late night TV, and they would say, "This is, this, is this guy for real? Cross of gold? Come on!" But, but it was. Well, people you know, do that. People do that for speeches by presidents all the time. You know, people yeah. People do that for speeches by, by, by President Trump. It didn't really hurt his popularity much. But, yeah. Well, first of all, this was uh, in Canada too, I'm sure. Uh, the late 19th, early 20th century, really golden age of oratory. Uh, mm -hmm. um, whole speeches by politicians were published in newspapers regularly. Uh, long, long speeches and sometimes two hour speeches, you know, pages on pages of this. And and um, speech is also really entertainment. As I mentioned before, you know, most, most Americans uh, had no real source of entertainment. Uh, um, and so you go to hear a politician speak, that's entertainment, if he's a good speaker. Uh, and he was a very good speaker. He, uh, I talk about in the book how he practiced speaking in front of his, his uh, elementary school buddies when he was six years old, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. giving political speeches. And uh, he always, uh, when he learned he could, he could capture people with his voice. Um, he knew this was uh, a, a imperishable commodity for a politician. Still is, I think, but especially mm -hmm. it was at the time uh, when there was no radio yet. Uh, and also there were no loudspeakers. I mean, he had to do it just with the power of his voice. Um, the speech he gave the 1896 convention, you mentioned the Cross of Gold speech, probably the, the most uh, famous uh, convention speech in American political history was given to a crowd of 20,000 people in a sweltering uh, wooden amphitheater in Chicago. And he gave it without any amplification at all. And uh, he could yeah, be heard incredible. throughout the whole hall. I talked to an acoustic engineer when I was doing research on this. Yeah. I wanted to figure out how that could happen. He said, he said, you know, his voice had to be very strong and of course, very of a particular quality. Uh, so it could be heard um, at different, different registers. And he might've been the only 
speaker in that hall in that convention who everyone in the place could hear, which, you know, gave yeah. them a real power, of course. Um, so, um, so there's an intense physicality to that too, right? Like it's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. not, it's not just about the content of the ideas, but it's about the athleticism of being able to stand and deliver at that volume and register. And he was a uh, performer too. He was a, I, mean, yeah. I, I, I mentioned this in the book, um, that when he, he's, when he said the last line of this very 45 minute long speech at the uh, Democratic convention in 1896, uh, you should not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. He put his head, he lift, he, he stretched out his arms. He put his head to one side. Uh, and if you didn't catch the metaphor to the crucifixion before, yeah. he certainly caught it then. Uh, and of course, uh, those who opposed him said this was blasphemy. Uh, he was saying he was like Jesus, but right. uh, but people went crazy. I mean, there was a I think an, I forget um, what I say in the book, but an hour long, hour long uh, demonstration inside the convention hall after that speech. And yeah. he was not the favorite for the nomination before that speech, but after that speech, he was the favorite for the nomination. Of course, got it after several ballots. So, but this was. You know, he was not alone in being a great speaker. I mean, people like labor leaders like Terence Powderly, the Knights of Labor, Samuel Gompers, American Federation of Labor, Eugene Debs, the Socialist, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, of course, all were, were renowned speakers. And, uh, you know, this was how you became uh, a leader uh, in, in most cases of, a, of popular, either of, of a popular leader of a party or of a social movement, the way Gompers and Powderly and Debs were. Uh, you had to do it by going around the country and giving speeches. Uh, there was yeah. no mass media yet. You were the, you were the media. Yeah, what, a, what an incredible time. And, and, and like there are points of continuity and also points of difference with contemporary politics, right? So, so obviously the, the, the physical realities are, are, are just are, are different. Um, we as modern politicians have have you know more things to help us out and you know and, and we can do it by by plane not by train and and, and so forth um, but I think American politics more than the politics of, of any other country is still really a source of entertainment right uh, <laughs> Perhaps, people yeah. people consume it um, to entertain themselves and um, you know whereas I think I think for us here in Canada there's there's more of a I guess like people are people follow politics less there's there's less sort of public engagement in politics and and that may be because we, we, we don't we don't see it as 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 part of our our entertainment uh, sphere in the same <laughs> way I, I, think, I, I never think of it that way but actually the percentage of canadians who vote is higher than that of americans isn't it is it okay yeah i mean uh that that may be my, my sense is that there's sort of a higher proportion of 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 activism. Oh, maybe that's uh, true. In the yeah, US. but yeah, yeah. Um, that would be, I guess, hard to measure. Um, hard to I mean, measure. Part, part of it is, is it's extreme polarization. I mean, I think yeah. um, obviously the parties are quite different in, in Canada. I, I know that, but uh, you know, I think, uh, and especially it's been true with with President Trump and since uh, he left office, but it was true before then yeah. uh, as well uh, under Obama. Um, and. Uh, so that's one of the things which drives enthusiasm, I think. But no, I think you're probably right. I mean, uh, again, U.S. politics has been, you know, the, uh, we've had universal uh, white manhood suffrage since the 1820s and 1830s. I'm not sure when it came to Canada. I think it was somewhat later in the 19th century. And, and uh, you know, as I said before, politics used to be a, a, the main form of entertainment for, for a lot of mm -hmm. men. Uh, and there were also 
uh, yeah, I mean, look at like look at Donald Trump. I mean, if he was not an entertaining speaker, he would never be, come close to being to get the nomination. He was a celebrity before he was a politician, obviously, and yeah. and that um, is is less rare in the United States, I think, probably than uh, we have people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was governor of California. Yeah. Um, what was his name? The guy, the wrestler who was governor of Minnesota for a while. Uh, yeah. And uh, so it's not as unusual. And uh, and to be to be a little outlandish, uh, to be, you know, a little, uh, you know, say things yeah. that that aren't aren't popular. But a lot of some people like anyway is is fine. People like uh, that kind of performance. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it certainly seemed to work for, for, for Trump in the sense that like, uh, um uh, you know, uh, well, I mean, it, it it only worked for as long as it worked. He did he did lose the, the well, second go around, but still pretty popular. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, like he, he, him him saying these these sort of hyperbolic things, uh, you know, that they get attention. I guess the, the one obvious difference it, it seems to be a difference between uh, the the kind of that world of of you know uh, the, that great historic era of 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 live oratory is. Um, is the sort of modern modern reality of the soundbite, right? Like the think things are so much shorter. Right. Um, I mean, what, was there the equivalent, or is it, it sounds like what, what you're describing is that there was much more sort of listening to the to the whole speech as opposed to. I mean, I, I, I flipped through uh, rarely, I, but but sometimes I flip through American cable networks and and it amazes me how short every segment is right like mm -hmm. it's like two and a half minutes later they have another guest on right it's just crazy <laughs> well of course they have to make room for the advertisements too yeah, yeah. but uh no it's true i mean that one of the things that was unusual about this golden age of oratory is uh speeches went on for 45 minutes an hour and um they usually had a lot of statistics and uh, uh and quotations from other people Quotations with the Bible, of course, uh, being a, a deep religious man, uh, Brian knew the Bible pretty much by heart. But, uh, you know, people listened uh, partly because they knew uh, some of that literature already. They knew the King James Bible. It was the only book most Americans had. Uh, but also because uh, this is how you learned about politics. I mean, people did read, but of course, a lot of people were illiterate, many more than now. Uh, and that was another uh, function, I think, of public speaking was uh, education. Uh, mm -hmm. In a way, it's it's not really now. Now we just assume public speakers is just propaganda, and if propaganda for your side you like it, propaganda for the other side you like it. But people don't listen to speeches in America now, political speeches, in order to really learn something. Right. That, that's an interesting point that I hadn't thought of about about uh, about literacy as well. Right. Because if you like, if you're not able to read, then the opportunity to hear a full length speech is is a pretty rare opportunity, um, you know, by a passing politician. I mean, that's a, it's a pretty rare opportunity to get a lot of information uh, that you that you couldn't really get any other way, right? Um, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that as being an element of it. That's interesting. Um, could you could you comment a bit on Brian's views on race? This is this is sort of an an odd contradiction to me, and something I have a hard time um, making sense of. Uh, you know, his him drawing on his 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 faith to talk about uh, standing up for the downtrodden justice, uh, uh, e even his anti-imperialism, his his uh, concern about uh, how imperialism was sort of causing violence against other uh, non-white people around the world. And yet his his um, 
his tolerance, acceptance, even support for white supremacy in America. How, how would you describe his views on race and how, how do you make sense of this contradiction? Well, first of all, he was a Democrat. And being a Democrat at the time meant that uh, you were going to be in trouble with the, with the strongest base of the party, which was the white South, if you were critical of segregation, if you were critical of white supremacy, uh, you didn't have to support it. And Brian sometimes supported it, sometimes uh, was silent about it, but you couldn't oppose it. It's just, that was the tradition of the party. I talk about that a lot in my new book, what it took to win the history of the Democratic Party. Uh, but that was, that was part of it. So as a practical politician, uh, he was not gonna be able to take a stand uh, against segregation, against racism. Uh, if he had, he would have been completely unwelcome in the Democratic Party and not that welcome in the Republican Party either by the early 20th century, which had, most Republicans had pretty much made their peace with the, uh, with this, with the Jim Crow system. Uh, but also, you know, the Christ, Christian church was, was uh, not a racially egalitarian church uh, at the time. There were white churches and there were black churches and, and white churches, uh, there was a theology uh, which believed in things like the curse of Ham. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh, yeah. uh, the idea that uh, uh, Ham, Noah's uh, son, uh, looked on him on his nakedness uh, after uh, the the ark uh, landed on land, and uh, he was cursed uh, by Noah, uh, and and uh, his all his children were cursed. And there's a theology that that said that uh, that Ham uh, was actually dark skinned and all his relatives moved to Africa. I mean, it's not very rational, but theology yeah. is theology. Anyway, uh, a lot of people believe that. Uh, and just in general, you know, it was a more paternalistic racism, which I think Brian was really uh, an exponent of, which believed that, well, black people come from Africa, they were less educated, but you could teach them to be as good as white people. But, you know, for the time being, they were inferior people. And so you had to educate them and not let them vote because they're too inferior, too, too uneducated to vote. Uh, so Brian basically believed that. Uh, sometimes he got away from that. Uh, for example, he supported the nationalization of the railroads uh, in uh, when he began to run for the third time, 1908. And Southerners in his party opposed it because they uh, thought that it would lead to desegregating the railroads if there was federal law about this. Um, and Brian gave a speech to them, to some Southern uh, politicians in private, not a public speech saying, I don't want you, your, your, your ideas about race to get in the way of this great reform. But in the end, he gave in and did not support it uh, in his presidential campaign, even though he planned to support it uh, uh, in the run-up to the campaign. So that's an example of how, you know, he was trying to be practical, but I also think for the most part, he, you know, believed that uh, uh, as a conservative person, theologically, that, you know, black and white people had never really mixed together in, a, in, a, in the United States and uh, uh, better to let, sort of let them go their separate ways as long as they were all good Christians. Hmm. And yeah, that, didn't change, that didn't really change, of course. It's a long, as you know, a long struggle yeah. uh, against, against that, which really didn't culminate in many ways till the 1960s. Uh, and at that point, you know, a lot of uh, conservative religious people, white, white conservative religious people did begin to, to leave the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, obviously you have, to, you have to try to understand someone in the context of, of the time. It is... I mean, it is obviously really, really disturbing at the same time, you know, to, to think about that history and, um, and it, 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 it does, um, I don't know about for you, for, for me, it, it, it does make it that much harder to have empathy 
um, empathy, especially, I mean, I'm a, I'm a religious person myself. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Christian as, as he was. And, and, and it seems like these things should have been obvious. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, but, but, but then again, there may be, there may be things we do today that, that seem obvious. History garnet should make you uncomfortable. That's yeah. One of the great things about history, it should make yeah, you yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. I always tell my students that if history, if you're comfortable about history and you just look at yeah. your heroes historically, yeah. you're not really learning history. Yeah. Well, this, and, and this is, I think the, the, the valuable thing about looking at, at Brian is, is the way he kind of makes us challenge some of the, some of the categories, right? The fact that he was, um, that he was in many senses a progressive um, and that he also had this, um, this, it, it, whether, whatever his personal convictions were that he was, was willing to kind of um, uh, either either support or look the other way in terms of the uh, the system, but 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 how does that square with? I mean, some of his critiques of of colonialism, because this this idea of you know inferior people needing to be educated. I mean, this this was part of the the colonialist discourse as well, right? And yet he was fiercely anti uh, anti colonialism. He was opposed to uh, America taking control of the Philippines. Um, and he didn't, and he he had a lot of he had a real kind of sympathy for and and sense of connection with, with Japan, if I remember right. Yeah. Um. So, so I mean, was this a contradiction in terms of the way? Yeah. The- well. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you know, people are complicated. Um. The anti-imperialist side of him was partly due, I think, to his he wasn't a pacifist, but he was he really believed that whenever possible. Uh, you should try to settle disputes peacefully at first. He was Secretary of State for two years yeah. uh, uh, under Woodrow Wilson. And actually, he resigned because he thought the U.S. was about to get into World War I uh, after Lusitania was torpedoed. You know, some of you might know that history. Yeah. Um, and he didn't oppose World War I when the U.S. Um, got into the war, but he didn't support it in any kind of visible way either. He just uh, he sort of stayed silent on it. Um, you know, I think on, on the Philippines, he believed that uh, it was unjust to rule any country, uh, any people against their will. Uh, and that was a small d democratic belief he had. And so in that sense, he was consistent with, you know, his uh, support for grassroots democracy uh, in this country. At the same time, uh, he certainly didn't want the Philippines to become a state, you know. Uh, right. And and he, uh, he did, when he was Secretary of State, the U.S. did go into Haiti, and the Dominican Republic and uh, push its weight around in those countries uh, to make sure they'd be, quote, more stable uh, and be able to serve American economic interests. So, you know, there was that there was those contradictions there uh, as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think uh, and also part of was his, his Christianity, as again, as he defined his Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, which was, uh, um, you know, turn swords into plowshares. When he was secretary of state, um, he. Uh, Put together some bilateral peace treaties, uh, yeah. cooling off treaties between different countries uh, and the United States, where if there's any kind of uh, dispute between uh, a couple of countries, between the US and another country, they would agree to a cooling off period uh, where uh, their dispute could be mediated and perhaps even arbitrated. And he gave a little tiny um, iron plowshare <laughs> to uh, the countries after they uh, signed these agreements. Now, uh, very importantly, significantly, the U.S. and Germany uh, never signed such an agreement. Yeah, uh, neither the U.S. and Austria-Hungary, or U.S. and the Ottoman Empire. But 
but uh, and with Japan, just really quickly, um, he went to Japan. He 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 was a very well traveled guy, actually. We yeah. took a couple of one big world tour and one uh, long trip uh, to Europe uh, in between his campaigns for president. And he was he was really taken with Japan. Of course, it was industrializing very quickly at that time, late 19th century. It was becoming it was a very kind of orderly place, and uh, he was taken with the art, I think, and the sculpture and the. Uh, uh, and the cuisine to a certain extent, I think as well. Um, and also he kind of adopted a Japanese uh, boy uh, who showed up at his home in Lincoln, Nebraska uh, and uh, wanted to um, go to the University of Nebraska. And so he sort of became sort of a step stepson, this uh, young, young Japanese fellow uh, who was also a Christian. Uh, and that was important. A lot of a lot of Japanese were not a, not a majority, but but mm -hmm. but a fair number of Japanese were converted to Christianity. And that's something, of course, Brian was all in favor of. Yeah. So um, th this has been a great conversation. I want to um, and, and look, there's there's so much about his life I and mean, we, we could delve more deeply into the um, into the uh, um, into his time as secretary of state. Uh, but just just to respect your time, I want to conclude on the the Scopes monkey trial, of course, oh, yeah, sort of the yeah. final the final vignette of his life. And uh, and one also with some contemporary relevance, because science has become a big part of our political debates and people people being called uh, pro-science and anti-science and so forth. Um, um, so the Scopes Monkey trial, uh, Brian is out of politics and he is fiercely opposed to uh, the teaching of, uh, of evolution. Um, what I found interesting about your book though is um, what I understood you to be saying is that the the scientific uh, issues around evolution um, were were also tied up in this kind of social Darwinism, uh, this idea of of it being just to for the strong to dominate the weak. And today we would very much see these things as separate ideas that one could be a um, concerned about about the rights and dignity of the downtrodden uh, as a matter of morality and politics. And still believe that the uh, the science of evolution is true, um, but for um, for Brian, like his his anti evolutionism was kind of an outgrowth of his progressive left politics. That is, he saw Darwinism as providing a a justification for the strong dominating the weak, and that and that was and that was a bad thing. Uh, so, I would love to hear your reflections on on kind of his role in the Scopes Mon Monkey Trial, but but in particular. Um, do, do you think that that his opposition to social Darwinism was a was a key reason for his his uh, his participation in this issue? Oh, yes, uh, really is about 95 percent of it, <laughs> I think, uh, besides the fact, of course, that, you know, he he was a fundamentalist and he believed the Bible, uh, everything in the Bible was true. So, of course, if you believe that, then then uh, you have a, well, a different understanding of, <laughs> of how human beings came to be than yeah. evolutionists do. Um, but, well, first of all, I should say that most Darwinists in the 1920s, the Scopes trial took place in 1925, were not social Darwinists. But there were a lot of people who were sort of popularizers of Darwinism, uh, who were social Darwinists, who did believe that um, self-preservation is the first law of nature and that, uh, as you say, the strong should dominate the weak and that uh, those who are top of society were destined to be there because of their, their biology, not because of uh, what happened in society and economics. And Brian did believe that. And he, uh, he actually, uh, and also something else, uh, which is very resonant, at least with some of the issues about education uh, in the United States right now, which he thought 
whether evolution is true or not, the parents in Tennessee and any other state uh, deserve to be the deciding group uh, about what is taught in their schools. It shouldn't be up to scientists to decide that. If parents in Tennessee, which is where the Scopes trial took place, uh, don't want their children to be taught that um, human beings uh, derive from from uh, monkeys and other you know uh, lesser organisms uh, then they have a right not to have that taught to their children uh, the children can learn somewhere else if they want to but they shouldn't have to be taught with their ta with taxpayers money uh, uh, these immoral ungodly uh, truths uh, or ideas uh, so he believed he believed that as well and for him again this was small d democratic you know yeah, these these parents pay with their taxpaying money for the public schools and they have a right to decide what gets taught in the public schools, at least when they have a right to object strongly to what gets mm -hmm. taught in the public schools if they object too strongly. But really, the, the main thing he was concerned about was that if, uh, and this might resonate with, with a lot of Christians today as well, uh, no matter what their politics, that if you get away from Christianity, if you get away from believing that uh, there's a moral basis you know, to life and that's based in your religious beliefs, um, and and if you believe in evolution, he thought that, that would make it impossible to believe uh, in Christianity as mm -hmm. Christianity, then society will go to hell, <laughs> almost literally. Uh, and so for his point of view, he was fighting, you know, for not just for the Bible, but but for the for a more moral society, uh, for a more brotherly society. And, and for him, uh, this was uh, really, you know, a, uh, a battle that was as important as any other battle he ever fought politically. Mm -hmm. Because it was it was it was connected to the other battles, and this is what I um, what I was sort of surprised to to find out. And I guess for me, the lesson of this was is um, like you have to be careful to assume that ideas are connected when they necessarily aren't. Right? That that the people who assumed that uh, scientific evolution was was connected to social Darwinism, uh, you know, and and it's. Uh, it's maybe not dissimilar with certain areas today where where um uh where where sort of the uh you know a scientific conclusion leads people to say well therefore this is what we should do in this case where there you can come to maybe, maybe you come to the same scientific conclusion but you have you, you the the political you the political response is uh is uh is different um i mean he he clearly was uh, well, was was he clearly wrong about the implications of evolution? I mean, uh, well, we, we can we can debate that. I mean, I yeah. think, as you say, you you know, there are a lot of Christians today who believe in evolution, and yeah, I'm one of them. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So right, so you can live with both truths. I think right, right. Uh, but but yeah. but I guess I guess was was he right to worry that um, that that uh, the teaching of this would lead to an increase in social Darwinism? Right. I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, partly you look at what happened afterwards. Uh, yeah. I mean, in you know the 1920s was a you know conservative era politically, but a pretty liberal era culturally, actually. Yeah. You know, the speakeasies and you know hemlines yeah. going up and so forth. Um, uh, but then the 30s, of course, is a conservative period culturally, actually, but a more obviously progressive period politically. And, yeah. And people didn't stop believing uh, in. Um, in evolution, or on the other hand, you know, there are still, you know, uh, most Americans are very uh, devout Christians in the 1930s, yeah. but but some of them, their politics changed. So I think, I think uh, it's possible to to keep things in different different categories uh, yeah. and, to, and to function. And I think that's true now. As I said before, you know, some of the 
the most uh, eager churchgoers in America are, are African Americans, and yeah. their politics is is more progressive for the most part. And um, and there are libertarian conservatives, uh, people who you know, like the Koch brothers and others, uh, yeah, uh, who are if they're not, if they're not atheists, they certainly have have no time for religion. Uh, Rand Paul, for example, I think. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's uh, I think it's possible to to keep uh, different ideas in your mind and still. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, the one the one lesson in particular from this is that, um, as you said earlier, people are complex uh, that you can if they're harder to find today because of political polarization and the presumption that that idea, certain kinds of ideas necessarily go together in groupings. It, it only takes a, 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 a look at history to realize that that actually there's all kinds of other possible combinations that right. are out there. And, uh, you know, Brian, uh, for the for the way he combined sort of different and seemingly contradictory ideas uh, on big questions, religion, populism, uh, progressive politics, science, um, but also just because of. Uh, uh, of of the intensity of his craft, his ability to speak, as you talked about, he he's a fascinating figure, and I'm I'm so grateful to you for uh, for taking the time to share uh, share this. Any anything else you want to add about Brian? Anything I should have asked you, or or maybe lessons lessons from Brian for uh, for modern politics? Um, I don't think so. I mean, yeah. just just uh, based on what you're saying before, I think at least the United States. I can't speak for Canada. Is would be healthier. If there was a vigorous religious left as well as a vigorous religious right, mm -hmm. because you know, again, I'm not a religious person, but I again am empathetic with people who are. I mean, I, I believe in things which probably aren't going to happen, like democratic socialism. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, no, no reason why other people can't have strong beliefs and things uh, um, that I don't happen to, to share. Uh, so I think. I think it's better, uh, and of course, yeah, there's there's been you know I mean one of the things I I had to come to grips with when I studied Brian and being empathetic towards him was was a lot of the power of uh, the political uh, ideas he had, uh, progressive political ideas he had, uh, came from his Christianity. So mm -hmm. it's not as if uh, he separated those two. As I said, yeah. he never he never separated them, and and that was true for Martin Luther King Jr. too. Uh, yeah. And even people like the great socialist, American socialist Eugene Debs, uh, he said. He said, uh, "Jesus Christ was the world's greatest communist." <laughs> yeah. So you know, there's uh, uh, this uh, Christianity is a, is a very broad uh, tradition going back, of course, a couple thousand years. So uh, there's many ways to be a, a deeply believing Christian and and uh, um, do a lot of interesting things politically. So. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a. Uh... There'd be so many interesting jumping off points from from that. I mean, I I, um, I, I think for some people it's sort of um, uh, well, I mean, I, I guess yeah. There 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 are there are things about the teachings of Jesus that 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 do point people in in, in different directions. Um, but but there's obviously a core that you can't get away from uh, um, that that when it comes to Christian social teaching is about uh solidarity concern for others and um you know and, and you can be a political conservative who believes in limited government and still believes in solidarity mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. but but you also obviously have people that have been um been drawn to the left so um so th this has been this has been been great such a such a pleasure to talk to you and and i'll um 
I'm I'm intrigued to to pick up your your earlier book on the history of populism and your your more recent book on the history of the Democratic Party and uh, folks uh, folks I'm sure can find those on uh, on Audible and Amazon and various other places uh, as as you're uh, gathering up your uh, your summer reading list so um, so thank you again everyone for listening to this. Uh, it's it's been a great run these last few months. We're taking a hiatus over the summer, and we'll be back with more episodes in the fall. Uh, have a great summer uh, with your family, um, uh, and and hopefully you'll you'll listen to some of the earlier episodes. You'll you'll have a chance to uh, to, to to catch up on some reading and um, and and uh, and time away time with family. Um, leave a review. You can find resuming debate on all the the usual podcast uh, platforms. Uh, and uh, and look forward to bringing you more episodes in the fall.